As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally football show. Today, it's the League Cup, third round of Cherish competition with its traditions of big scores and even bigger shirt numbers. Also, a tasty weekend in the Premier League with a North London derby and Chelsea Man City again. Will it be more Tuchel torture or Pep get a turn being the dominant one this time? Plus, Alonso taking the knee or the pee? And foreign refs, should the Premier League bring them in, especially if they can drive a lorry too. All this and more in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. Hurrah! Thursday the 23rd of September and unlike some, we're fielding a top lineup for our Carabao Cup week. We've got Tom Williams. Hello, Tom. Hello, James. Nice to see you. Also returning from The Athletic, Adam Crafton. Hello, Adam. Hello, lovely to be back. And from The Athletic and The Villa View, Dan Bardell. Good morning. Good morning to you. League Cup third round. What, what did you watch? Any, none, all of it? Dan? I watched Aston Villa bow out on penalties last night to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. And I also watched Liverpool dismantle Norwich the night before but to be fair I've watched the highlights of most games as well it was it was an exciting round there's quite quite a lot going mm. on a lot of goals a lot of interest yeah yeah we round two had already had an eight nil and, and three six nils this time we had a six one uh, courtesy of Man City against uh, Wickham Wanderers and also that seven nil from Brentford over the Football League's lowest place club Oldham crikey Tom what were you across I watched uh, Liverpool-Norwich. Liverpool quite comfortable victors in the end. But Norwich had chances, had a penalty saved. Christos Solis had a penalty saved at 1-0. Um, and they could perhaps count themselves slightly unfortunate. Uh, and I watched Man United-West Ham last night. The shock of the round. Adam, you, I think you also saw the United game. Yeah, I saw, well, I saw large parts of it last night. Um, I mean, it's just sort of... Yeah. How many times, I don't know, on Totally Football Podcast we tried to work out whether Manchester United are any good or lucky or or whatever. Um, they're actually all right last night, I thought. They just didn't really take the chances um, that they that they made. But from a West Ham point of view, huge, no? First first win there at Old Trafford since two... How long is it now? 2007 or 2007, something? 2007, yeah. 
Yeah, first ever win for David Moyes since leaving uh, Manchester United. For United, uh, Adam, as you hinted at there, two defeats in three, although I guess their starting lineup might hint as to how highly the uh, Carabao Cup ranks among their priorities. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I don't think it really matters as a competition, you know, whether United won that competition or not. I do think it matters that they could have done with just having those three or four extra games because their squad is so bloated. Um, when you look at the players that were starting last night that won't be in the team uh, this weekend, so you're talking, you know, players like, I don't know, Jesse Lingard, Jaden Sancho, uh, Donny van der Beek, uh, Victor Lindelof, Alex Tellez, Diogo Dallo, Dean Henderson even, who's quite a, an ambitious number two that wants, to, you know, that will need some games. And now all of a sudden, because they've also put themselves under pressure in the Champions League, you start to wonder, well, where are the games where Solskjaer will trust his squad enough to rotate or do you just sort of get left with this clutch of seven or eight players that don't get used very much until the FA Cup and the January transfer window comes around so I think it's more from a squad management point of view that there could be a bit of a knock-on effect for Manchester United Um, my favourite part of the game and I don't know if people have watched this back but there was a run by Mark Noble at the end Mm. where it was all set up for him to to crown off his uh, his very dramatic week against Manchester United with a goal but it wasn't actually his miss that was the highlight it was the fact that he's comfortably out sprinted Diogo Dallo who is about what 12 13 years his junior um, from the halfway line leaving him about 10 yards behind on this sprint and it just struck me that some of those Manchester United fringe players are perhaps a little bit uh, more unfit than than the supporters would like Diego Dali, I, I like to call him. A huge mm-hmm. crowd for that game as well. Very impressive. What was it, 72,000? Maybe they thought Ronaldo was coming. Also, very early days, but Jaden, I think the Jaden Sancho in, in, uh, situation is becoming a little bit interesting um, in terms of the sort of lack of impact that he's made so far. And I know it's only been three or four starts, um, but it, it is an interesting one. I think it would probably be far more under the microscope if there wasn't sort of a far more famous player who had just arrived to the football club um, in Ronaldo. But I think Sancho is he's struggling at the moment to really make a mark. And I think even, you know, the fact that he started last night probably means he won't start in the Premier League at the weekend, I would think. So then it becomes, you know, you're getting into the October international break and he's yet to really come to the fore as a United player. Um, I just think, you know, it's not alarm bells or anything like that, but I think it's definitely one that could escalate a little bit in the coming weeks in terms of the amount of scrutiny on his performances. Mm, more on Man United shortly in their game of the weekend because they're playing Villa, of course. Uh, but I insist that we talk a little bit more about West Ham before we uh, move on. Uh, they've got Man City next, who I mentioned, 6-1 winners against Wickham. How did you feel about West Ham's performance, Tom? Yeah, really impressive from West Ham, I thought. I mean, you look at the United, the Manchester United team, and obviously it was a weakened team, 11 changes from the weekend. But David Moyes made 10 changes from the weekend. The only player who kept his place was Jared Bowen, who's an attacking midfielder who was playing as a centre-forward. He hands a, a debut to his goalkeeper, Alphonse Ariola, gives game time to a lot of other players. And, you know, West Ham were, were under the cosh a little bit. But also, at the same time, you know, in addition to the goal, which was quite nicely constructed down the right, Ryan Frederick starting in, cutting the ball back, and, and Manuel Lanzini has, uh, has sort of uh, crept into space behind a sleepwalking Donny van der Beek to finish. Um, and then the, the chances at the end of the game. Um, there's that Mark Noble one-on-one that Dean Henderson saves. 
Andre Yormalenko hit a post. Uh, there's a chance for Jared Bowen as well. Um, and you know, contrary to Manchester United, who who haven't been able to sort of sustain their kind of league momentum uh, in this competition, uh, just further evidence of this kind of. This nascent feel-good factor, well, not even a nascent feel-good factor at West Ham, this sort of continuing feel-good factor at West Ham, continuing from last season, that they can go to Old Trafford, put out what is effectively a reserve team with a few round pegs in, in square holes and come away with um, with a really decent win. Brilliant. All right, well, Man City in the fourth round towards the end of October. They've got Leeds this weekend in the Premier League. Other results midweek. Arsenal, 3-0 winners over AFC Wimbledon. Watford went out to Stoke. Everton went out, QPR on penalties and spot kicks were needed elsewhere for Spurs in their win over Wolves, Leeds over Fulham, Saints at Sheffield United and yes, Chelsea against Aston Villa. Dan? Yeah, I thought that's the second time in recent weeks Villa have been to Stamford Bridge and been the better side. I thought that they were comfortably the better side in the first half of, of the league game, but it doesn't seem to matter what Villa do. Chelsea seemed to come out on, on top at the end. I was a little bit disappointed before the game with, with the team selection, but there was a lot of changes. There wasn't any first-teamers on the bench, which I think ultimately was our downfall at, at the end of the night because I want Villa to win something. I haven't won anything since 1996. The Carabao Cup's a massive chance to go and do that and, and win that trophy. That's what a lot of supporters want to say. And that, that, I think there was a little bit of initial disappointment when they saw the team. But then when you watched us play... A mixture of youth and fringe players. We really went for it and had a good go. Responded well to going behind. Scored a nice goal. Cameron Archer now four goals in the Carabao Cup this season. He's come from absolutely nowhere because he hasn't been one of the youngsters that's been hyped up or spoken about at all. But he looks like a real finisher and his movement's very good as well. And it comes down to, to the lottery of penalties. But I think if Villa had had players on, on the bench to bring on, if they'd have put Watkins on the bench, maybe Ings on the bench, and had them to bring up, bring on late on in the game, because Chelsea threw on their big hitters in Lukaku and Mount, I think the game would have, would have swung in Villa's favour. And I think perhaps we, we, we could have nicked something at, at the end of the game when, when we pegged them back. But it is what it is. We, we've gone out on penalties. I don't think any confidence will have been dented. Still think that those two performances against Chelsea are probably maybe the two best performances of the season for the club, but they just happen to be the two that they've lost. And I think Villa go into the game against Manchester United on Saturday full of confidence, and I think there's every chance that they walk away with something. Ha! All right. Villa's record against United, as you know, Dan, not the best. I would imagine no. Dean Smith had the United game in mind when he when he kept so many of his first-teeners back for uh, this trip to Stamford Bridge. Quick check on the other fourth round of fixtures that will be coming our way in late October. Chelsea, having beaten Villa, will take on Southampton. Arsenal will be up against Leeds. Stoke have Brentford. West Ham uh, receive a visit from Man City. Leicester take on Brighton. It's Burnley Spurs, QPR Sunderland and Preston North End against Liverpool. Very evocative. All right, let's get on to the Premier League weekend with... Man United, Villa and much, much more next. America, a nation that has given us Europeans more than any other. Air travel, Google, Cardi B. But we've given them the greatest gift of all. Golf. And we're not going to let them be better at it than us. It's the Ryder Cup. And to celebrate Paddy Power, have a special offer. If your selection goes three up at any stage, get paid out as a winner. Paddy Power. Applies to all pre-match singles on match result markets for four-ball foursomes and single matches only. Max payout £1,000. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Premier League match day six we're up to now. The weekend beginning with, look at this, a Champions League final rematch. Chelsea taking on Man City 12.30 on Saturday. Also at 12.30 on Saturday, for reasons we'll get to shortly, uh, Man United's clash with Aston Villa. Then you've got four games at 3pm, Leicester-Burnley, Everton-Norwich, Leeds-West Ham and Watford-Newcastle. Then Saturday concludes with Thomas Frank's fresh and fearless Brentford taking on Liverpool. Sunday it's Saints-Wolves at 2, then at 4.30 there's the North London derby, Ooh, uh, Arsenal against Spurs, a rivalry almost as historic and bitter as the one that on Monday concludes the round, uh, Crystal Palace-Brighton. Let's start with Saturday lunchtime and Chelsea Man City, the rematch. Havertz in a pocket of space, Anderson came and didn't get there, chance for Chelsea, goal for Chelsea! Kai Havertz in the Champions League final, Anderson couldn't get there, and Chelsea take the lead in Porto! Yup, Chelsea Man City, or to give it its official title, Tuchel versus Pep, part four. Three times they faced each other this calendar year, all three of them have been Chelsea wins, what can football's ultimate galaxy brain come up with to end that run? I mean, well, the, the team sheets will be eagerly anticipated after the ambitious tactical approach that, that Pep Guardiola adopted in, in the Champions League final in what was, as we know, the starkest example of him overthinking a big game, uh, certainly in his Manchester City tenure, possibly in his entire career. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what sort of team he puts out. We know that City have got a few injury issues at centre-back. I think Ilkay Gundogan is doubtful as well. And going into this, OK, they, they had that uh, pretty comfortable midweek win in the Carabao Cup, but really disappointing performance. Home to Southampton last weekend, nil-nil. Didn't register a shot on target until the 90th minute. And, of course, the, the, the great contrast between these two clubs in terms of their summer transfer activity was that Chelsea were the club who needed a striker and went out and, and got one and Romelu Lukaku was already banging the goals in and City with a club who needed a striker and, and didn't get one and, and Ferran Torres has, has scored some goals in that position um, but perhaps isn't going to be a, a durable long-term uh, solution uh, for them. Um, so I think given Chelsea's slightly better starts of the season, given the fact that, that Thomas Tuchel seemed to have the Indian sign over, over Guardiola in their three meetings last season, I think you'd have Chelsea as, as favourites here. OK, City didn't pick up a striker, but they did pick up Jack Grealish, of course, from Villa, Dan. Despite his departure, as you mentioned, that's twice that Villa have taken on Chelsea and been the better side. What in those performances do you think Man City could exploit to to get the win this time? The league game, which was the one where we, we caused them the most problems, but obviously ended up coming away with nothing and get, made it look like it was wor- worse than it was by, by losing 3-0. He was getting among, amongst the deep midfielders. I mean, it was Saul and, and um, Kovacic that day. And Saul won't play against Manchester City. I don't think there's any way in which Tuchel risks that because he doesn't look like he's up to speed with the, the pace of the English game yet. But it was that high press up against the midfield and exploiting the space between the, the slower elements of, of Chelsea's back three where Villa really, really caused problems. Watkins high pressing, Ings high pressing, that, that's what they're very good at. I'm not sure Man City have got, have got the personnel to, to do that across their, their front front three. Torres had a great start of the season. Jesus seems to be playing more from the right-hand side. But he, he was not giving them the time on the ball that seemed to, to really ruffle Chelsea and that, that was where Villa had some joy. So 
they'll probably have a different a different tactical approach against Man City. They'll probably be be a little bit more secure at the back than perhaps they were. Maybe that maybe they underestimated Villa Villa a little bit, but. I guess the big thing selection-wise is going to be Pep had a, a reluctance to play a defensive midfielder in that in that famous Champions League final. I think with the doubts over Gundogan and and Rodri, he's probably only got one defensive midfielder to choose from in this game, and it's Fernandinho, who is a fantastic player, but obviously is is at the wrong end of of his career now. Chelsea's midfield so so strong. I think Kante went off at half time last night, so I'm not sure whether that was fitness or or whether it was tactical. But the midfield is going to be a really key area in this game and it'll be interesting to see how both teams line up. Mm. Adam, what do you think? It's a huge week for City. I mean, they've got uh, Chelsea away, then they've got PSG away and then they finish the week at Anfield, um, which is probably just about the hardest week possible in world football um, at at the moment. Maybe not PSG on current form, to be fair, but um, certainly Chelsea and Liverpool... Um, I think Dan raises a really good point about Fernandinho, um, who by sort of accounts of reports against Southampton last weekend, he had one of those games which I suppose players start to have um, when they get into their you know mid mid to late thirties, which just starts to suggest you know that they're on the turn a little bit. Um, I think City need to need to avoid losing. Both, I mean, if they're to lose both of these games, it means they go into that October international break potentially nine points behind. Um, and you don't fancy Chelsea and Liverpool this time around to be, to be blowing that kind of lead. They look so strong and solid as, as teams that you can't really see them losing that many games. So City need to get a mark down. They've put themselves under a little bit of pressure. Um, but I agree with the guys. You know, They've got issues down the spine of the team now, City. They've certainly not got their centre-backs fully fit. Central midfield is a bit of doubt. I don't think De Bruyne is back to his best after injury just yet, and they've not. You know, we don't know who's going to play up front. One of the things I think they could exploit with Chelsea is a bit like Watkins had that bit of luck for Villa against them. I think Son was it up against Rudiger last weekend in the first half, where he seemed to break in behind a few times. But you're not. I'm not sure who the natural player is at City that would be able to do that to really, you know, really do that tireless running. Maybe it's Raheem Sterling, but then him and Pep don't seem to be. You know, necessarily on you know the best of terms at the moment. They did get Phil Foden back midweek uh, in the victory mm. over Wickham, and he he looked full of legs. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I've never really seen him play that. I mean, I'm almost wanting someone for Man City to play a Craig Bellamy style role, which is just running those channels against those three centre halves, taking them out of position a little bit, and being very very selfless. Uh, maybe Ferran Torres or Foden or Sterling can do that. Um, it's also an interesting comparison when you think the equivalent fixture last season was probably the one that confirmed once and for all that Frank Lampard was doomed and, and City were absolutely stunning. I think it was the first half, they were 3-0 up um, last year and they were, they were stunning and that was the game that really started to set City on course to, to winning the title after a slow start. So I think it will tell us a lot about the direction of travel for both teams since then. Um, City obviously still a fantastic team but it's just the nature of the way the fixtures have fallen that you would think if this week goes wrong for them it might be quite difficult also because Chelsea you know they have had tough fixtures they've gone to Arsenal they've gone that might not be a tough fixture they've gone to Arsenal they've gone to Liverpool certainly isn't um, no they've gone to Liverpool um, 
been to Spurs. All of these fixtures sounded a lot harder before the games than after the games. And obviously they've got City as well. So it's not like Chelsea have a run of fixtures around the corner where you think, oh, they're going to be dropping points before Christmas. Um, so important City get something. Mm. I would say Lukaku up against Ake would concern me. Ake has had a decent start to the season, but he's the kind of opponent who I think Ake would struggle to deal with. I've seen opponents like that causing trouble in the past. But for Man City, if Man City had their first choice back line, you know, you'd probably feel a little bit more confident, but with the defensive midfield element, with the centre-back options being down to the last two, I think it's the kind of thing that Lukaku will thrive upon, and I think he'll be the main difference in this game. Well, one potential absentee for Chelsea is the goalkeeper, Edouard Mendy, who's in a race against pain and a race against time, according to his manager, Thomas Tuchel, of his chances of returning to the lineup. Chelsea yet to concede a goal from open play in the Premier League this season. Just that one uh, Mo Salah penalty that they've conceded so far. Uh, one other kind of element to this fixture is, is our friend Marcus Alonso, who announced this week that he's unilaterally decided to stop taking the knee before kickoff, uh, claiming the anti-racism gesture is losing strength. He has been doing this for a couple of games, I think, now, and instead points to the Premier League no-room-for-racism badge on his sleeve. He admits that he hasn't spoken to his teammates about the decision, but confirms I'm fully against racism and I'm against every type of discrimination. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's up to the individual, but... I think the whole thing about this gesture is it's powerful largely because of the solidarity, you know, the display of solidarity. And I think there was an excellent article on The, on the Athletic about this, about the fact that it represents backing up your teammates. Uh, so it does seem strange that he wouldn't have talked to anyone else in the team. Also, when you've got Nigel Farage taking your corner in certain publications, it doesn't fill you with confidence that you're on the right side of history. But I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Yeah, it's a weird one. I think particularly the fact that he hasn't consulted any of his teammates. I mean, we know that Wilfred Zaha at Crystal Palace has mm. for a little while now not been taking the knee. Uh, but he is black. He is someone who has had first-hand experience of racism and, and sadly continues to do so. Um, Marcus Alonso, as a white player with black teammates, has an opportunity to, to make sure that he's on the same page as those players, but has decided unilaterally that it's not for him. I, I just find it... Slightly peculiar. And as you say, if you've got Nigel Farage banging the drum for you, uh, I think you, you might want to revisit your uh, your motivations. I find it a, a bizarre statement as if pointing to an anti-racism message on your shirt. Is this some kind of grand gesture that's replacing t- taking the knee? I, mean, what, I don't understand what, what he thinks is the difference b- between the two. Surely that the taking of the knee and having that unification is a bigger statement than just pointing to something that's on, on your shirt. It, it just makes no sense to me. The fact he hasn't consulted anyone at all, it, it doesn't sit well at all. I mean, I've been, I've been at games where I have heard, and it is a small element, people booing the taking of the knee so as, as long as that's happening it's still important the players have explained what it is they've explained why they do it I just think it, it, it doesn't look good on Alonso at all it's hard to think of a more weak gesture than just pointing to a badge as exactly. well like yeah like visually it's just such a such a yeah such a limp thing to to replace taking the knee with it's quite a remarkable commitment though to football's news cycle in a Carabao Cup week uh, where people were worried we may not have anything to talk about whatsoever. Marcos Alonso has has produced the goods uh, quite spectacularly. Um, the, the thing I can't really understand is he says that the message has you know has lost its resonance, but 
surely by, by then not doing it and not consulting your teammates, you're further undermining uh, this gesture that you're saying your word is, lo- is losing its resonance. I didn't really like Thomas Tuchel's comments actually either um, when asked about it and he was then, you know, basically saying, you know, he almost suggested that, you know, Alonso's stance could be the wake-up call that we need. Um, and I'm not really sure, you know, what, what, what was being awoken by Marcos Alonso's single stance, you know, against the knee and in favour of pointing at the slogan. Look, I mean, I think there are like very legitimate questions uh, that have been raised by, you know, black coaches, technical directors and players about whether the gesture is being backed up by the action and policies that, that they would like to see by football governing bodies also, you know, above that um, on a legislative level, both about, you know, social media um, and beyond as well. I mean, I was encouraged because I was at the West Ham Manchester United game on Sunday and when the players took the knee, it was complete support um, for it. There was no boos, there was no murmurs, it was just cheers. So that to me suggested, you know, this is something that has gradually won public support. And you saw that also in public opinion polling before and after the Euros, that the, the percentage of the British public who supported taking the knee um, had grown. So it is working in terms of changing public opinion, whether it's working in terms of providing the perfect legislative environment for black people to thrive in sport is maybe a different question. I must admit, with Thomas Tuchel's comments, I, I, I did think he was trying to just be pleasant and put a positive spin on things and say, well, at least it's it's got us talking about this issue again, because there might be the danger that the gesture becomes so normalised by its repetition that people stop to kind of recognise what it's about. So in that sense, I I kind of get what I think he was trying to say, but but there you go. That's uh, Marcus Alonso. Anyway, uh, Chelsea coming into this weekend, three clear of Man City, uh, level with Liverpool and Man United, who Dan hosts your Aston Villa in the other 12.30 kickoff this Saturday. Dan, as you're aware, this was originally scheduled for three o'clock, but has been moved because of a gig by the Cortinas at the local cricket club. Uh, so, yeah, they, it's the Cortinas. They've got support from Johnny Marr, Blossoms and the Big Moon. It's quite a lineup. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel sorry for the for the fans that are going that had purchased travel arrangements around a three o'clock kickoff because it, I, I presume this gig was not last minute, but yet the game was only moved a couple of weeks ago, which doesn't make much sense to me at all. But I guess the, the fans don't seem to be at the forefront of people's minds when they're, they're making these arrangements with, with kickoff times because there's all kinds of strange things that are going on. But I, I guess we may as well talk about the penalty that Manchester United are going to get at Saturday lunchtime already because they've had three penalties in the last three games against Villa, a couple of them very, very dubious. And Manchester United haven't had a penalty yet this season, so we may as well start talking about that now. Excellent. Excellent. United have that phenomenal record against Villa. Dan, unbeaten in the last 18 meetings, uh, 14 victories, four draws in that time. Why is it? I mean, apart from penalties. I've absolutely no idea, but I remember my second season, I was seven or eight as a season ticket holder. It was that famous, you don't win anything with kids game. And Villa beat Manchester United at home in 1995. And then that hasn't happened again since. And we're now in 2021 and I'm still waiting to watch Villa beat Manchester United at Villa Park. And the record at Old Trafford hasn't been much better either. Just a, It's just a complete bogey side. Every team will say they've got bogey sides. I don't know what it is about them, but this is beyond a bogey team. Now, it doesn't matter what Manchester United are doing at the time. It doesn't matter what Aston Villa are doing at the time. There's just absolutely no way that, that, that we win games. Even if we play well, we just go there and, and, and we get beat. 
I do actually, stupidly, with all that in mind, fancy us to cause them problems at the weekend. I think I, wa I watched Ronaldo's first game against Newcastle and I thought 4-1 flattered Manchester United quite heavily and I, I thought Newcastle caused them a lot of issues on the break, which is what I can see Villa doing with this new three-of-the-back system with two up front, Watkins and Ings. I can see us being dangerous on the break against Manchester United, but then I know that penalty's coming and I know it'll be at a crucial point. An impassioned rant there, but um, young boys have, have caused United problems at West Ham. We saw last weekend came within a, a better Mark Noble spot kick of, of taking points off them. Villa last weekend beating Everton 3-0 with that incredible 20-minute vignette from, from Leon Bailey. Is he going to be fit this weekend? From what I hear, no, which is ah. a blow because he looked very, very dangerous when he came on for that 21-minute cameo against Everton. He's an incredible signing for Villa. He is going to be the Grealish replacement for all that Christian Perslow has talked about, Ings, Buendia and Bailey offering a combination of the things that Grealish offers. Plus, I think Ings obviously adds adds the goals in. Bailey is an excellent signing for, for Villa. He's a player who's uh, operating at a level above, I would have thought, what we were capable of getting in in the transfer window. If you look at his stats in the Bundesliga last season for wingers, He's up there with the Bayern Munich players in, in, in terms of productivity. So I think he's a sensational signing. But unfortunately, we've only seen cameos of him so far. He just hasn't managed to stay fit. He had a, a good cameo against Watford on day one when we were 3-0 down. We ended up losing that game 3-2 and, and he made an impact. And then he came on and did what he did against Everton. I think with his pace, the way he carries the ball, his set-piece delivery, how, how direct he is, he's going to be a hell of a player. But we just need to get him fit. Hmm. All right. Came off in the 84th minute, I think, against Everton and, and very much in doubt for this weekend. Adam, so you were watching uh, Man United live last weekend and you've already expressed your kind of ongoing doubts about whether you're watching a, a good club, a, a club that's going places or not. Do you share Dan's uh, pessimism about Villa's chances? Or is it optimism? Actually, there were, there were definitely some flashes of optimism despite yourself there. Giving myself room to manoeuvre. Adam, what do you think? It's a cunning, it's a cunning blend of both, I think. <laughs> um, I thought Man United were actually good at West Ham last weekend, which um, when I then listened to sort of podcasts and read reports afterwards, um, no one really seemed to agree with that. Um, but I, actually, I, thought it was, I thought the first half in particular was one of their better performances of the season. Um, and I think it helped them a lot, having McTominay back in midfield after he's been out for a few games. Um, makes Fred a bit less bad. Um, to have McTominay next to him. But you, it, it's just, you, you don't know what you're going to get from game to game. And then even within the game, um, they have these 15-minute periods where they look like they could be a really great team. Then they have a 15-minute period where they look like they're going to get their manager sacked. Then they have another 15-minute period where nothing really happens. And you keep thinking each week, well, at some point this will consolidate into becoming a really good team or just sort of falling apart. And it just doesn't. It just sort of rumbles on with um, these weird periods between games where you just don't know how good they are. But what we do know they have is a lot of really good individuals that can produce moments. And that's only been further underpinned by signing probably the best individual on current form in the world in Ronaldo. And his movement is unbelievable. Um, I was sort of sat level with the penalty area last weekend. And his movement in the final third and the speed of it is sensational. I mean, he does nothing for... 90% of the game he's and when I say nothing I mean he's mostly just stood still with his hands on his hips flapping his hands a bit at referees 
and then that 10% where he goes, I mean, I think he, I saw a stat the other day that he, he recorded the top speed in that game against West Ham, which must have been over five yards because he doesn't really sprint more than that um, at any point. But when he goes, it's unbelievable. Um, and really, I would say to anyone listening, if you can get yourself to a game where he's playing this season, just go because it is, it is you know, I think we maybe forget because we see so much of these guys on TV, but these real world-class players, um, to watch them live it is, it is extraordinary. Um, and the thing with Ronaldo as well is there is always something happening with him in the game, whether it's a penalty appeal or a goal or a missed chat. You know, he, there is no game that goes by without him doing anything at all. Mm-hmm. Dan, as you probably recall, when he was at United last time, their record against you was even better than it's been since 15 games, one fourteen, drew one. Crikey. I would say it's worth noting that Ronaldo's three favourite Premier League opponents in terms of goal output were Newcastle, West Ham and Villa, and he's already put two to the sword, so you wouldn't bet against him making it a third. Right. Am I right in thinking this game's not available on regular television? No, I don't think it is at all. No, I don't think you can watch it. No. All right. It's funny, isn't it, how, how quickly we became accustomed to being able to watch every single mm. game. Um, and then obviously United Newcastle wasn't on telly. There were Arsenal fans on Twitter last night who were exasperated by the fact that they couldn't find footage of the game anywhere, not even on any dodgy streams. Um, really? Yeah, it, just, it is. Uh, well, apparently, yeah, that, that seemed to be the vibe. Not that I would endorse the use of um, uh, dodgy streams, uh, of course. Um, but yeah, it is slightly perplexing to find a, a 12.30 game uh, that isn't on, isn't on telly. Right. Well, next up from the Premier League, a bit of history. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. With Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is handy for when Spurs stop pretending to be this ruthless winning machine and revert back to type. Ready for the fast bit? Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's over 18's only. And please gamble responsibly. History will be made on Saturday when referee Jared Gillette takes charge of Watford against Newcastle. The Australian official will be the first overseas referee to take charge of a Premier League match. Five-time referee of the year in the A-League. He came over to England, though, in ooh, 2019 to take up a postdoctoral research position at Liverpool John Moores University. He's got a PhD in biomechanics, which is pretty impressive. This is exciting news. I bet everyone's keen to watch Watford, even more keen to watch Watford Newcastle to see our first foreign referee. Why do the Australian League have a referee of the year award? More to the point. Why do we have Why referees don't we? of the year? Who, who would have been your referee of the year last year? I mean, a lifetime achievement award, Mike Dean, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know enough, Adam, to, to, to I mean, but there would be people who would. Um, so I, yeah, I think I think rewarding areas of 
of, of excellence in, in, in officialdom is a good idea. But um, broadly speaking, and I've seen you tweet this, Adam, actually, that if you can have foreign managers come in and certainly foreign players and even, let's be frank, foreign pundits enriching our, our enjoyment of the game, um, why not foreign referees as well? Because they do it in France, don't they, Tom? They have done it in France. Uh, the example I was going to add to the hot ref chat pot was from Egypt. Um, the, Ky- the Cairo derby between Al-Athli and Zamalek, the Classico Al-Arab, is such a stormy, uh, frequently contentious fixture uh, that they almost always bring in overseas uh, referees, both for their professionalism and because there's a feeling that if they've come from, you know, Scotland, where actually quite a few referees have officiated this game, they're less mm-hmm. likely to favour one team over the other. So it, it does does happen. All right. Scotland, by the way, I've been importing referees for years. 12 years ago, Scottish referees went on strike over a lack of protection from criticism by the uh, Scottish FA, and they were temporarily replaced with officials from Israel, Luxembourg and Malta. Just broadly speaking, it's good to know that at a time when, when Britain is, is, is struggling to get a lot of imports into the country for various different nice. reasons that we probably shouldn't go into, that we are at least able to still bring in the odd elite referee. So perhaps, right. perhaps those supply lines haven't broken down completely yet. Although he did come in 2019 and is, is, is now a resident. Hmm. There we go. Well, that's what we should have done then with all the other stuff. You know how they used to put, do they still do this, where they put after the referee's name as if they're on who wants to be a millionaire, which county they're from. Um, so it would be, I don't know, Graham Paul from Harrow, Berkshire or Tring. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Are they going to have to put Jared Gillett's PhD after his name in the newspaper? <laughs> well, I hope so. Doctor. Mm. Doctor Gillett. Jared Gillett. It's Gillette, not um, Gillette. I do apologise. Right. Um, by the way, Tom, that business of the French doing it, there was a referee swap programme started this season between France and Portugal. So a Portuguese referee did Bordeaux against Lens uh, recently, and uh, the youngest referee in Ligue 1 history, uh, the 28-year-old Willy de la Joie, I probably mispronounced that as well, also took charge of a Portuguese game, Passos de Ferreira against Braga. So, yeah, other countries looking to freshen things up a little bit and official talk. I think we're losing Dan, though, so let's, let's, let's reference... I was going to uh, say, it's, it's, like, it's like pen pals gone wild. Or student why? exchange gone, gone wild. Just the, the, the swapping element of it, I can't, I can't, I can't understand it. It doesn't make any, any sense to me at all. I don't, I don't get no. what, the, what the benefit is of it. Well, you get a top official, you know. But presumably, you're swapping a top official for a top official. Are you, are you swapping a, a bottom rung referee for a, t- a top rung referee? I, d- I don't. I don't really understand understand what it is that, that's being gained. But maybe maybe it's just me. All I know is that my, my dean will be absolutely fuming that there's another referee in the Premier League that's getting a lot of publicity. Wow. He'd be well, livid. Indeed. Do you know what would be great actually, and might perhaps attract a bit more interest, is if the refs had to not just swap roles with the refs from other countries but swap lives in a kind of channel four wife swap scenario so basically move into each other's <laughs> homes for a couple of weeks you could turn it into a you know a short running tv series and just see how australian officials deal with you know the weekly tesco run in addition to all their refereeing responsibilities just just an and idea. being mic'd up as well because they, they do that in australia uh, fantastic in other news winless newcastle have only beaten watford once in the last 10 meetings Tune in on Monday to find out if this one went any better for them. Uh, we'll also, of course, come Monday, be talking about the North London Derby, the first North London Derby to be played in front of a full house 
since far off September 2019. Adam, last time you were on three weeks ago, Tottenham were top of the table and Arsenal were bottom. And you, you were expressing, I think, the doubts that many of us felt about their prospects. But look, they've risen all the way to, I think, 13th now. And if they win this match by two goals, they would actually be above Spurs, which is like a trophy or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been known to make predictions before Arsenal-Tottenham games, and that tends to go quite spectacularly wrong. Um, so I won't go too strong either side on this. I think the two clubs are in pretty similar positions um, at the moment, where you know neither set of fans fully trust their players. Um, I don't think either set of fans will be going into the game on Sunday, you know, expecting to win. I think both there'll be a lot of anxiety. Um, from from both from both uh, sets of fans, but I think it will do a lot to shape the next month or so um, for both clubs. You know, if Arsenal to lose at home against Tottenham, that then becomes four defeats, and you're not even you know out of September yet. Um, I think that becomes a massive problem for Mikel Arteta, and and equally, I think Nuno, well, he needs his team to score a couple of goals from open play. Um, so we're, we're we're talking about. You know, pretty low bars, and I think it's probably a game where both teams would probably take a draw if they were offered it now and just get out of it unscathed and, you know, without lurching into another feeling of a crisis. Wow, that's a big shout. Spurs needing to score some goals. Harry Kane's form currently so woeful, though, it, it almost sparked a major row last week between carpooling buddies Roy Keane and uh, Michael Richards. If any game, though, was going to wake Kane up. It, it should be this one. He's got an incredible record in North London derbies. He looked a little bit lost against Chelsea last week. People talk about lack of effort, doesn't want to be there. I, I just think he, he's lost. I think he's had average two touches in the in the opponent's penalty box compared to six last last season. I think that was what I read earlier. So you know he's, he's not even in the positions at the moment. He's he's always a notoriously slow start. But if there's any game, he's going to come alive with that record of ten of thirteen in, in North London derbies. It, it's got to be this one because if if he doesn't, if I was a Spurs fan, I'd be pretty concerned. Isn't he just playing the way that he did for most of the Euros? Um, I know quite a lot was made of the fact he turned up against Ukraine, but actually for the rest of the tournament, he was pretty poor um, and looked a bit sluggish and languid. And you know, then he didn't have a pre-season, and maybe we're just seeing, you know, what what I would expect to see from a player that was out of form in the summer, didn't have a pre-season, you know, not entirely. Um, you know, you would probably say mostly due to his own. Um, feelings at that time in terms of a full and proper pre-season and now he's having to use Premier League games to get fully up to speed so you know I can understand why Tottenham fans might feel a little bit frustrated obviously he's got a lot of credit in the bank and he scored in the Carabao Cup against Wolves which might help um, but I don't think his form is necessarily a huge surprise on the basis of what's been happening over the past four or five months. And also Harry Kane never scores goals in August anyway um, and we have very often found ourselves in September wondering when his season's going to get up and running uh, and then, you know, he'll score a hat-trick against someone and then and that'll, be, that'll be him up and away. I think the fact that he got that goal against Wolves in the Carabao Cup in, in midweek will, will help. You, you look at these two teams and, and they are, as Adam says, in very similar positions. Arsenal started the season very poorly and, and have now found a bit of momentum from somewhere. Spurs, the complete opposite, you know, managed to grind out three wins and, and have, you know, go into this on the back of two, three nil defeats. I think Harry Kane's quality is the sort of thing that could decide this this sort of game, which I which I suspect will be 
will be quite close and quite scrappy. I'm thinking error strewn, slapdash defending, score draw. But you say, you say that both of these teams have only won one nil this season when they've won. It's been one nil, hasn't it? Arsenal have won two two in a row, one nil. I think Spurs' first three games were one nil as well. So it seems to be all about the one nil. But what struck me is in my lifetime, it just feels like the most underwhelming North London derby ever. I, I just can't get excited about it. The, the, the players on show, the managers, it all just feels a little bit bleh. Imagine if they had a foreign ref taking charge. That would really... They would add some juice. It would certainly it. add some juice yeah. to it, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. The one thing that gives me hope about this game from a neutral perspective is that both managers picked quite creative midfields uh, in their most recent league games. So Arsenal uh, winning away at Burnley with a midfield three of Thomas Partey, Martin Erdegaard, Emil Smith-Rowe, which is quite a, quite a bold midfield three uh, to be sending out in, 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 a, in a Premier League game. And Spurs, you had Tanguy and Dombele, uh, Deli Ali, uh, Pierre-Emile Hojberg and Giovanni Lo Celso, albeit Lo Celso sort of playing from the right. I think if if both managers are similarly bold in their team selections, this could be quite quite easy on the eye. Um, even if you know th- these are two teams who uh, you know who who look generally quite vulnerable. I think uh, the jeopardy of this game makes it very compelling. The potential for content that comes out of either side, you know, this going wrong for either side is quite high. Um, I fear a nil nil. I don't know why, um, but I fear that. You know, there is so much to lose for both sides. I was just thinking, you know, to the other guys, I don't think, I can't really remember a top four looking as clear so early in a season as it does this season. Can, can you see either Arsenal or Tottenham coming back to comp- to even compete for, you know, even for fourth place? I'd say Arsenal are more likely to finish bottom four than top four. <sighs> Fell into that trap so beautifully. In a, in a word, No. It is. I, right. I, I mean, it, it almost harks back to the days of the old uh, Big Four before it became a Big Six, when you knew who the top four were going to be every single season. And that there is a clear gulf. I mean, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City are three of the best teams in Europe. Manchester United finished second last season. Have, have recruited extremely well. Uh, I don't see Arsenal and Spurs closing the gap. Um, Leicester have made a poor start to the season. Obviously, you know, Brighton are up there at the moment. Everton haven't started the season too badly. West Ham have got a bit of momentum, but it, it does feel like that, that, that top four will be, will be set in stone pretty swiftly. All right. Well, let's talk about what awaits the other member of that leading quartet, Liverpool, next. Uh, Brentford. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Soonest. Here's Johnston. Brentford wanted offside. 
it went in off Ian Rush. 4-1. And again, Brentford have lost their discipline and their marking. Brentford, uh, Liverpool's first trip there in 38 years coming up this Saturday tea time. Uh, October 1983, it was a 4-1 victory for Liverpool in the Milk Cup at Griffin Park. Uh, the players had to change in a porter cabin and then make their entrance to the field through a car park. Uh, unperturbed Ian Rush and Graham Souness amongst those on the score sheet. What was number one, October 1983? I'm going to go, can I go for like a Halloween-y kind of vibe? Why, if you like. It was number one for ages, if that's any help. It's not the Bonnie Tyler one. No, which Bonnie? Are you talking about Total 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 Eclipse of the Heart? Yeah, Yeah. that'd be the same period, wouldn't it? No, no, it was uh, Karma Chameleon uh, by The Culture Club. You know, which, of course, then Liverpool... uh, Yeah, exactly. Now, Liverpool have made an almost perfect start. Can Brentford stop them? Fresh from their 7-0 win over Oldham. Can they? Brentford have, have, by all accounts, been very, very good at the start of the season. And what, what is particularly impressive is how few goals they're conceding. Um, mm. it's, it's only conceded two in their first five Premier League games. You know, and you can set that against a team such as Norwich, for example, um, who feel like they concede two every 15 minutes at the Premier League. Um, you know, it's, it's quite a big contrast. Um, and it gives them the potential, you know, as the season goes on, to get those sorts of 1-0 victories that keep you up um, as, as a newly promoted side. Um I think they'll have a proper go at it and I think there'll be periods of the game where Liverpool look a bit ropey and uncomfortable but I th- you know Liverpool look really strong to me this season because you know you've got Salah I think Salah's probably as in form as any striker um around uh, Mane is a bit hit and miss at the moment but still very dangerous but Van Dijk's such a big difference I just trust Liverpool so much more with Van Dijk in the team that you know, that they will get through those difficult moments of games and then their creative players finish it off. But I, I do think it'll be quite fun, though, to see Thomas Frank against Klopp um, in the dugouts. I think that has potential for good entertainment. Um, and, then, you know, I think any chance that we get to, to learn a bit more about this interesting Brentford team is good. Liverpool uh, statistics say won't lose unless Chelsea do earlier in the day <laughs> uh, because they've had exactly the same score lines on each and every match day of this season so far, including, of course, the 1-1 draw with each other. Curious. Mm. Well, a little earlier on Saturday afternoon, but after the Chelsea game, Leeds take on West Ham. West Ham did the double over Leeds last season, and they've got Mikel Antonio back from suspension, who's possibly a striker who's even more in form than Mo Salah. Tom? Yeah, I mean, Leeds haven't got going yet. Um, You know, by this stage last season, uh, you know, we were all singing their praises uh, after they'd sort of arrived in the division, all guns blazing. And and we've seen elements of of that uh, in their games so far, but five games of that a win. They've shipped uh, not inconsiderable amount of goals um, and... Away at Newcastle last time out, you saw that you, you thought that might be the sort of game that would that would help them get that first win under their belts. But actually, they were second best uh, for for large portions of the game. And obviously, you know, there's there's no um, there's no pressure on Marcelo Bielsa. There's there's no sense that you know that, that the Leeds project needs uh, a drastic overhaul or anything. But the longer this run of games without a win goes on, the the more you do start to worry that they're going to struggle to rep- um, replicate what they achieved last season. And West Ham, as we know, um, albeit 
you know, having gone three league games without a win, uh, are a very dangerous opposition. And with uh, Antonio coming back in, that's you know that's obviously uh, going to strengthen them even more. I heard quite a feeble excuse earlier on today that the fans being back has affected Leeds in that the communication is such a mm. big part of how they play. Last season, when mm. when the grounds were empty, it was easier for them to communicate, so they they could get instructions across easier, and it was reflected with the results on the pitch. Whereas they're struggling with with fans being back and communication. Interesting. Well, tough game, no question, at New Zealand Road for Leeds against West Ham. Elsewhere, uh, contemporaneously, at three o'clock Saturday, you've got Everton taking on Norwich, perhaps a less tough fixture as they go. Everton, though, beaten last weekend by Downs. Villa knocked out of the League Cup by Championship QPR on penalties midweek. And also, Hammers has gone to Qatar, sad face emoji. They are still sixth, the Toffees, just three points off the top of the table, but they've got a bit of an injury crisis going on up top. Norwich not much happier, bottom of the table, of course. Lost 15 Premier League games in a row. Uh, ooh, Destiny Claxon. Last time Norwich won a Premier League away game, guess where it was? Goodison Park. Goodison Park. Yes, yes. In fact, they've won on their last two trips to Everton in all competitions. But, uh, well, hey, Dan, you saw them in the League Cup. Not going to happen this weekend. I'm very, very worried about Norwich. I, I like the way they operate and I understand the reasoning why they operate the way they do, but they just don't seem to have learned much from the last time that they're in the Premier League. It, it, it's all very, very similar. And I know it was a, a reserve side pretty much against Liverpool on Tuesday, but they, they just look to me like they've got the same old problems. If you can't defend and you can't defend set pieces and then you've got an attack that isn't really fluid and he's, he's full of goals. Pookie's OK, but you know he's not, probably not going to score more than 10 goals in the Premier League this season. I really, really worry for them. I, th- I think they're going straight back down from where they came from, to be honest. Hmm. Aside a point above Norwich at the moment are Burnley, who are somehow kind of Teflon as regards relegation, or at least have been. They travel to Leicester. Burnley coming off a 4-1 win over Rochdale in the League Cup. All four goals scored by Jay Rodriguez. Will that buy him a, a, a start, do you think, away at the King Power? No, Ashley Barnes and Chris Wood are immovable objects um, from from that Burnley starting team, I imagine. Um, I do fancy Burnley in that game to win, um, mm. mostly because, as you say, they are Teflon from relegation. At some point, they are going to have to start winning some points, um, despite sort of the best efforts of clubs such as Norwich and Newcastle to you know, protect teams such as Burnley from going down this season. Um, I think Burnley, yeah, I, th- I think it's the sort of game where if Burnley were to score first, Leicester haven't made a great start to the season. I think they're struggling a little bit in terms of finding the best way to play because um, they, they were playing with two up front, weren't they, towards the end of last season. Now they've gone back to just having Vardy up front. Um, I think they're struggling a little bit. And I understand why they're struggling because they've been quite relevant for the last couple of years. And now all of a sudden you're looking at them and thinking, why is... What's the best they're going to do this season? Is it sixth, seventh? Um, and that must be a bit, must feel a bit sad. You know, must Brendan Rodgers maybe must feel, have I, you know, have I, have I had my best moments at Leicester because of, you know, as Tom was saying before, that gulf between this top four and the rest feels larger and larger. And I think it, you know, it's a little bit of an identity crisis for Leicester um, as well. And you know, you you do have that issue with. Uh, the site is it Dakar up front that mm. we've not really seen too much of yet. Um, I, th- I think that's going to be quite an interesting thing to see how he starts getting in the team, what that means for Vardy, and, and Je- I think James Madison needs to try and rediscover a bit more of a flavour of his best form as well. Okay, it was uh, Brighton who beat Leicester 
last weekend. They will be in action this Monday away at Crystal Palace with Tarek Lamptey apparently available after nine months out with a knee injury. The other game coming up this weekend, Southampton against Wolves, which is Sunday at two o'clock. Saints have drawn their last four Premier League matches. Uh, Wolves have won on four of their last five trips to St Mary's. And Segway Ahoy, speaking of Wolves' record, Wolves' records. Did you see this exciting news that they've teamed up with Warner Music to launch their own record label called Wolves' Records? It'll see performing artists benefit from the reach of a Premier League football club's global audience while also gaining access to Warner's marketing and distribution expertise. Crikey. Will players be expected to um, contribute? I don't know. Apparently they haven't got yeah, anyone you'd, signed you'd up certainly, yet. You'd, you certainly hope so. If there's not at least one terrible Wolves novelty record um, off the back of this, Connor Cody rapping unconvincingly, right. um, perhaps some harmonising from the Portuguese lads, then this, this will feel like a missed opportunity, <laughs> I think. Possibly it would be an Adama Troyeri number that would be a long player uh, but doesn't finish properly and just fades out. Or just doesn't ever finish. Fabio Silva, breakthrough talent, finally start to repay some of his £40 million uh, fee. <laughs> Possibly so. Well, th- th- this is, I think, by some distance, even in a week filled with curious news stories, the most eyebrow-raising, though. Yeah, it's it's slightly curious. I mean, it's not totally unheard of. Um, uh, uh, Marseille have got uh, some kind of uh, link-up with local musicians, um, but then Marseille has more of a reputation for music than Wolverhampton who, who, does, who, I would have thought. What Wolverhampton got? I've got Roy Wood and Wizard is all I can think of. <laughs> Were they from Wolverhampton? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know. I'm struggling. Oh, Robert Plant. Yeah, that's Ooh, a show. okay, yeah. All right, yeah. Stand Robert Plant says producer Charlie, yeah. Okay. Uh, good. If you are a musician and you're from the black country, get in touch because they're looking for artists, apparently. Apparently Slade are from Wolverhampton. Wow, okay. So we're we're Wizard from Wolverhampton as well. Sure, you can't have two of the greatest Christmas songs of all time from the same city. But that's the thing. That would be extraordinary. That must break some some quota retirement somewhere. All, All you would need now is Paul McCartney to have kind of emigrated north after a few formative years. Wizard, I'm hearing, from Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, Right, Okay. Well, that's probably enough on Wall's record label. Uh, Did you want to finish off with something particularly pithy about Saints' chances of making it five draws in a row or or Wall's getting yet another victory there? Well, we we touched on Wall's finishing problems and that that feels quite central to uh, the issues they've been having so far this season. Uh, it felt like they'd got their season up and running with that win away to Watford and then were home to Brentford last weekend. You thought, right, well, you know, chance to put back-to-back victories on the board, but but were well beaten. Um, and I kind of feel like Raul Jimenez embodies a lot of the, the difficulties they're having. And I noticed that towards the end of that game against Brentford, he tore off his protective... Mm headgear which he's obviously having to wear you know because of that awful injury he, he suffered last season and uh, from admittedly the, the, the little that I've seen of Wolves this season he, it seems like he's getting in good positions quite a lot and it just isn't really happening for him there was also that very unfortunate failed Rabona that he uh, attempted in the first half uh, that, that didn't come off quite as, as he was um, hoping but yeah aside from that win at Watford they haven't scored a single goal this season Wolves and, and I, I feel like 
that yeah that that is not uh, sustainable um, if they want to you know drag themselves away from from the bottom of the table because you know quality wise they're they're a top ten top twelve team on paper. Oh, nothing worse than a failed Rabona. Anyway, all right. Well, there you go. That's a busy, busy, busy uh, weekend in the Premier League, which we'll be reviewing in Monday's Totally Football Show. Very shortly, we'll touch on a couple of big stories from midweek in Europe. Barcelona, Messi, that kind of thing. But first, some odds from Paddy Power uh, with producer Charlie. Thank you, James. Thank you, listener. It's me and it's Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Festival season might be over, but I'm seeing a couple of big headliners on the Premier League stage this weekend. First of all, Chelsea v Man City, Tuchel v Guardiola. It was 1-0 in the FA Cup semi-final. It was 1-0 in the Champions League final. Feels like it might be 1-0, Carl. Yeah, Charlie, Thomas Tuchel really rocking Chelsea's world. Ever since he replaced Frank Lampard as their lead singer, the latest trick the German pulled was throwing on Kante last Sunday when it was nil-nil at the break and then sitting back with his feet up like a smug teenager playing championship manager. It ended 3-0. No doubt the German is the real deal, folks, and his Chelsea outfit are starting to look like the real deal too. In regards to a 1-0 Chelsea win, well, everyone has a bogey team, Charlie, and Pep's Man City seem to have one very much so in the form of Tuchel's Blues. A Chelsea 1-0 win is 7-1, Charlie. In terms of the match betting, it's 17-10. Pick them as the traders sit on the fence, whilst the draw is 21-10. Interesting. And then we've got the North London derby. Harry Kane's only had four shots this season, but even when Kane isn't scoring, he always scores against Arsenal, even when he's not shooting. Same again on Sunday? Well, the advice from Roy Keane, Charlie, last weekend was in order for Kane to regain his mojo, he was to run at a defender, knock him over, and then stand over said defender. Hmm, not sure about that one. Kane is yet to score in four PL outings so far, and his form looks to have plummeted since being chained up in Levy's dungeon for the last few weeks of the transfer window. He'll get four to one about Harry to be the first goal scorer in this one, and seven to five any time. Both will be popular. But the sight of the Gooders' shirt alone should get Kane's juices flowing again. And in the last seven seasons, Kane has always managed to get at least one league goal against Arsenal, a decent record against one's biggest rivals. A fortnight is a long time in football, Charlie, and Arsenal's turnaround in league form comes at a time when Spurs have been on the end of two wretched results of late. But strangely, I think Santo could outmanoeuvre Arteta here and deliver the bragging rights to the white half of North London. Spurs look tempting at 21-10 to 10 to me, but the traders in Paddy Power don't see it that way, Charlie. Arsenal are the favourites at 13-10, to 10, and the draw is 11-5. to 5. I guess we'll see who'll be wearing the dunce cap come Sunday evening at 6.30, Charlie. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. They were doing midweek action in Serie A Liga and La Liga in Italy. Among the delights was Bologna's two-to-draw with Genoa, which saw their young Scots uh, left-back Aaron Hickey becoming the first Scottish player to score in Serie A since Joe Jordan in far-off 1986. Extraordinary. Uh, Hickey having a much better time in this game than he did at the weekend when Denzel Dumfries uh, left a big mark on him, I suppose you might say, on Hickey. Hey. Yes, yeah, uh, 6-1, that was uh, an Inter victory against Bologna. Anyway, Bologna are seventh, which is nice. Is um is Hickey a universal name for love by in the whole United Kingdom? Oh, I don't know. Well, is, does it work in Wales? What do they call it? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we call it hickey in North Wales. I, right. I just, I always, yeah. I've never really thought about it. It's, you know, it's. Um, did, you, did you think it was a Welsh thing? Well, it's just you know one of those things that you only ever hear about in a certain context. I wonder whether it might just be a North Wales thing or like a North. No, I don't thing, think but... so. And I believe that the entire continent of North America also calls it a hickey. So. Ah oh, well, so, then I'll get back in my box. Yeah, the tribesmen of the Kalahari probably also describe an over affectionate. Um, loved by Azahiki. Anyway, um, in France, Tom, less happily, more crowd trouble. Angers, Marseille, kind of appropriately, actually, uh, marred by incidents at full time with uh, the Marseille fans storming the pitch to confront their, their, uh, whether, you know, their, their adversaries. It's becoming a bit of a thing. It's the third time this season that we've, we've seen this in Liga. Of course, there was a Nice Marseille game earlier on in the season that had to be stopped, uh, because of fans spilling onto the pitch. Uh, there was a Lens-Lille game next weekend uh, that was interrupted for about 45 minutes at half-time for the same thing. And then last night, nil-nil draw between Angers and Marseille. I think one set of fans started lobbing firecrackers around or something and, and, and the fans end up fighting on the pitch. And also, sadly, uh, not directly related, but there was um, an accident involving some Marseille supporters travelling home after the game uh, and one fan uh, lost his life. Um, so, oh. yeah, a bit of a, bit of a, a grim night uh, for, for Marseille fans. Okay, I imagine there's been a lot of think pieces in France about you know, what this wave of trouble is is being sparked by. Yeah, I mean, no one's really put their finger on on the cause. There's been lots of there's been lots of talk about what appropriate uh, punishments are. Um, so for like the Nice Marseille game, uh, Nice were docked a point, uh, and the game was ordered to be replayed behind closed doors, um, and that's going to be later on this month. Uh, Lens Lille, I think Lens have been have been ordered to play behind closed doors until the the, the LFP disciplinary committee can actually reach a, a definitive verdict on it, and I'm sure we'll see a similar thing um, off the back of that Angers Marseille game. It, it feels to me like it's almost the product of of fans being allowed back in stadiums again uh, after you know the, the long, very difficult months of of the pandemic, and it, you know it has to be said France has a a, a pretty vibrant ultras culture. You do have people who go to games. There is a, there is a, a, a thuggish hooligan element to, to, to quite a few uh, French top flight clubs, and, and I think I think a lot of this is probably to do with the fact that these guys have spent eighteen months, uh, if not longer, cooped up at home, not able to get on the terraces and um, you know sort of uh, express themselves as, as they usually would, and, and, and things are just are just spilling over. But it is worrying that that you know not even uh, a full month into the season we've already had three of these incidents there was a mm. bit of bother last night as well in the the Mets PSG game so it's um it's a bit of a worry was that Messi and Pochettino again that was not Messi and Pochettino no so um in in Messi's absence with a knee injury uh, it was left to Kylian Mbappe to be the uh sort of provocateur in chief uh he he appeared to try and lob the Mets goalkeeper when he was supposed to be giving him the ball back after Mets had <laughs> put the ball out of play for a stoppage late in the game with the score 1-1 and very finely poised, which is obviously not the done thing in that sort of situation. PSG then scored a 95th minute winner, Atraf Hakimi getting a second of the game, and Mbappe saw fit to run up to the, the Mets goalkeeper, Alexandre Kidja, who was lying flat on the turf, and basically just rub it in, you know, goad him over the fact that his team had lost. Ukidja then ran after him uh, and was pushed over by Neymar. It was all a little bit, uh, a, li- a little bit Keystone Cops. But yeah, Kylian Mbappe's uh, unexpected transformation into a bit of a heel uh, is is um, 
is perhaps one to keep an eye on this season. Did, did, did Mbappe do his um, sort of crying eyes meme? Where he sort of... He, uh, do you know what he, I mean? He didn't, he didn't exactly, but there was a new variation of it, which has been picked up by a few PSG fans on Twitter this morning. When Ukidja, the Mets goalkeeper, ran over to remonstrate with him while the PSG players were all celebrating, he hid behind a teammate, Mbappe, and then sort of popped his face around the corner with a sort of like, oh, don't be sad look on his face, which was actually quite funny, uh, despite the fact it was also <laughs> grossly disrespectful. All right, PSG are now seven points clear with Marseille dropping points and potentially facing a points penalty after that trouble at the game against Angers. Crikey. Oh, Messi's old club Barcelona. Ronald Koeman, the manager, causing a bit of a storm on Wednesday by turning up for his press conference and just reading out a statement and then leaving without taking any questions. This after a 1-1 draw with Granada last Monday, which saw his side compared to Stoke. 54 crosses... PK playing up front, all that kind of thing. Michael Cox saying, I desperately hoped that that Stoke side had had more Champions League winners than the current Barcelona. But sadly, says Michael, it seems to be 6-5 to Barca. Anyway, we'll we'll get the latest on the Catalan Giants in next Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show. A bit closer to home. Sadly, we hear that uh, after Derby, Reading are the latest championship side, potentially heading for a points deduction for breaching financial rules. Yeah. Uh, we'd had a, heard a bit about their accounts on Monday's edition of the Totally Show. And in other news, the Premier League have reportedly agreed their break around the 2022 World Cup, which is troublingly in Qatar, as you know. Uh, players will have a full week of preparations with the national sides before the tournament gets underway. And if they get to the final, they'll have a whopping eight days to recover before the league gets started again. That's going to be... Significant, I feel. But for whom? Well, we'll see. Um, But not much else they can do, I guess, in terms of making a space in the middle of the season. No, it'll be quite a nice break, I suppose, for some players. Um, Mm. You know, those who don't don't go to the World Cup will probably be um, completely revitalised. I think from a schedule point of view, it will all feel less weird because of the pandemic. You know, we're now very used to disrupted seasons and sort of things you know being a bit out of kilter so you know that's purely from a schedule point of view there's all just different mm-hmm. kinds of concerns um but i do think actually um the pandemic may have helped from that perspective i'm still not quite sure you know i suppose when you have those summers where you have sort of pints flying in the air we're just going to have sort of hot chocolates with marshmallows going sailing through london london pubs mulled wine maybe yeah probably mm-hmm. probably still pints Mulled pints? Mulled pints. Yeah, possibly. All right, well, much to be pondered over. Uh, Read that tournament, which uh, will see the Premier League stop on November the 12th and pick up again on Boxing Day. So that's fully six weeks off, which, as I say, feels like it's going to be probably quite significant. Do we know if other leagues are going straight back into fixtures for sort of Boxing Day 28th, 31st, or is that just like the Premier League? I not um, wanting to miss out on that. Miss on Boxing Day, yeah. <laughs> it's a good good question. I would imagine that it's got to be similar timings, although I've not seen any any schedules announced by anybody else yet. Well, some of the other European leagues have, have staged Boxing Day games, haven't they? Or at least mm. have tried to kind of encroach on that territory, realising that currently it's basically just a, a week-long window where the Premier League is the only league you can watch. Is it Spain or Italy, maybe, who've had games around that time of year? So... 
And I think, I think a lot of other fetching. European cultures really kind of admire the whole like Boxing Day tradition. I know, I know they they do in France. So maybe this is a chance for them all to get a piece of the a piece of the festive pie. Hmm. Yet another benefit of the 2022 Qatar World Cup. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, we return on Monday with our thoughts about the weekend. But for now, it's many, many thanks to Dan, to Adam, uh, to Tom and to producer Charlie and you listener. I don't need to name you because you know what your name is. Brilliant. Uh, have a great oh, weekend. Can I say? Yes. Sorry. Sorry, James. Can I say happy birthday to my mum very quickly? Is, does she listen? <laughs> well, she claims to, but I think this would be a good opportunity to find out. she listen all the way past the... Well, exactly. That's why I've left it to the very, very end. So ah. we'll, we'll know for sure if she listens now. Right. I guess we will. Excellent. Uh, all right. Uh, happy birthday, Tom's mum. And from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.